When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Toby Maguire and Liev Schreiber star in Pawn Sacrifice, based on the true story of chess prodigy Bobby Fischer, who finds himself caught between two Cold War superpowers during the 1972 World Chess Championships. It is now playing on demand. Also playing on demand is He Named Me Malala, the remarkable story of teenager Malala Yousafzai, who was attacked by Taliban gunmen in Pakistan for advocating girls' education. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. It's in your house. New York City. This is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I am Allison Wilmore. And I am Jen Yamato, entertainment reporter at The Daily Beast, filling in for Matt Singer, who's on paternity leave and probably doing a really good Michael McDonald impression already to his unborn <laughs> child. In this episode, Allison and I are going to spoil the hell out of Star Wars The Force Awakens, so feel free to run far, far, far away if you haven't seen the movie yet. Yes, and later in the show, we'll be bringing you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Uh, since one of the breakout characters in The Force Awakens is the adorably ball-shaped droid BB-8, we thought maybe we'd discuss cutest robots in the movies. Yeah, But that actually is the kind of surprisingly divisive topic that can end in tears and knife fights, and we just weren't ready to do that the holidays. So to play it safe, we're going to be talking about other interesting sequels instead, as befits our age of franchises in which The Force Awakens just shattered U.S. box office records. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. And I have got three movies to highlight, all currently available on demand to watch now. First up is Phoenix, one of the best films of the year. Jen, have you seen this one? I have not yet, but it is waiting for me on Netflix. There you go. Uh, it is Christian Petzold's drama about a Jewish woman named Nellie, played by Nina Haas, who is really terrific, and who survives being sent to a concentration camp and uh, actually shot in the face. She gets reconstructive surgery and returns shattered to Berlin to see what's left of her old life. And no one recognizes her because her face is different. And she becomes this figure who's almost like a ghost, uh, finding her, her husband, her ex-husband, and trying to figure out if he actually betrayed her to the Nazis. Uh, not light viewing by any means, <laughs> but it's really fantastic. And also kind of a tribute to Vertigo, among other things. So definitely check that one out. Two more films that I am looking forward to seeing, interested in them, have not seen them yet. They're both available now on demand. The first is American Hero, written and directed by Nick Love and starring Steven Dorff as a man with telekinesis who mostly uses his superpowers for party tricks until he realizes he needs to make some changes in order to reunite with his estranged son. I'm always interested in seeing movies that tweak the formula and expectations attached to superheroes, so I'm intrigued by that one. Also new is Don Verdeen, directed by Jared Hess and co-written by his wife Jerusha. Um, they're the team who've made Napoleon Dynamite and Nacho Libre and Gentleman Broncos. This film stars Sam Rockwell as the title character, a self-proclaimed biblical archaeologist who's hired by a small-town pastor to find sacred relics in the Holy Land and who resorts to fraud when uh, that doesn't go so well. So all three of these movies are currently available on demand. There are stories about what happened. It's true. All 
dark side. A Jedi. While Matzinger is away on paternity leave, the lovely Jen Yamato has been kind enough to Skype in from Los Angeles to serve as our guest host this episode. Um, and I told her that for the main review, sky's the limit, whatever movie or TV show she wanted to talk about, anything, that's what we do. And this was, you know, a pointless question because, of course, there's only one movie that anyone wants to talk about at the moment, and that movie is Star Wars The Force Awakens. So we're going to be taking a detour to the multiplex this episode in order to talk about the latest installment in the Star Wars franchise, as well as the new U.S. box office record breaker for opening weekend. And since the main film spotting podcast has already discussed the movie in advance, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to be getting into the details, the nitty gritty, the big fat spoilers. Um, so fair warning, if you haven't seen The Force Awakens yet and you do not want to get spoiled, you're probably going to want to tap out at this point uh, and check back in once you've seen the movie. Don't come at us on the internet <laughs> and tell us we didn't warn you because we... <laughs> we've warned you. We're warning we've you again. So many, times. so many warnings. Okay? <laughs> okay? All right. Okay. Uh, does The Force Awakens even need an intro? It's, it's directed by J.J. Abrams. It is the continuation of the events after The Return of the Jedi. It's the start of a new trilogy and the launch of what Wired Magazine called the forever franchise of <laughs> Star Wars films for the rest of our lives and beyond. And the movie revisits some old characters like Carrie Fisher's now general Leia Organa. Mark Hamill's Luke Skywalker, however briefly, Chewbacca, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Sniff Harrison Ford as Han Solo. It also introduces some new characters, including Oscar Isaac as Poe Dameron, an extremely dashing resistance pilot. So dashing. So dashing. John Boyega as Finn, a stormtrooper gone rogue. The droid BB-8, Adam Driver as the conflicted and extremely goth bad guy Kylo Ren. So goth. And of course, Daisy Ridley as Rey, who is basically the new Luke Skywalker. So Skywalker. The hero of this new franchise. Um, and I wanted to ask you about her first, Jen. As much as I hate to bring up Max Landis, writer of Chronicle and American Ultra and general Twitter flamethrower, uh, he did kick up a storm when he tweeted the other day, quote, they finally did it. They finally made a fanfic movie with a Mary Sue as the main character. He's referring to the fan fiction phenomenon of an author inserting an original character into an established universe who's usually impossibly perfect and impossibly powerful and someone that everyone likes way too much. Ray, he's arguing, is that person for Star Wars, that she's too good at everything and she's too perfect. So, Jen, I want to know, do you agree with this observation? Well, yes, and and Ray is also the the fan the the fan and audience stand in, right? She is someone who's heard of Luke Skywalker. Somebody's people have called her like basically a Luke Skywalker fangirl in in the movie on Jakku when she's like sitting at in her in her uh, hollowed out hovel, uh, staring off into the distance. What is she thinking about? She's probably thinking about you know how little she has to eat. And how much she she's getting shafted on those spare parts prices, but I guess you could say you could say that she's like dreaming of being a pilot out there and dreaming of Jedi and uh, Luke Skywalker's in a way that she is coming into it like we are coming into Star Wars, which is with her own built-in mythology. But she, but you know, Max Lance is right. He's, he's or you know, like whoever is arguing that that argument is she's she's pretty perfect she doesn't really have any flaws she's uh she comes in to, to save the day she she like um bests all of the men in her life <laughs> repeatedly which is really cool to watch mm -hmm. but it also doesn't give her very much of her own conflict mm. 
Um, did you find it hard to believe when she beat Kylo Ren, who has been established as the like the most powerful kind of like well-trained Jedi equivalent so far that we've seen uh, in in that kind of in both like mind control and mm-hmm. in a in a lightsaber battle? Was that too much? No, no, no. I I believe that would happen because obviously it was going to happen, and we could tell it was going to happen for like the entire movie. Um, Star Wars is. Star Wars is a franchise in which heroes get to win. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you come in with a lot of loaded elements when you make the hero, the, the, the hero a heroine. Um, and she's very winning. I think she's a really great champion for female fans and for even for, for men who get to like see what it looks like to have a, a, a female character who can kick ass without having to pander to her gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for me, that light, that lightsaber battle worked because I knew it was going to happen. Like there's so much destiny in this, in this world that you can chalk up cheap or easy story like scripting to, oh, well, they were, they were always meant to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find the Mary Sue idea interesting. And I mean, I don't think he's entirely wrong, but I do feel like it's, uh, that's a sliding scale and it's a complaint that you could make about most kind of male male characters especially in something that's kind of a fantasy YA story mm-hmm. because so many of them are based on someone who discovers that they are the most important person in the universe in mm-hmm. this universe that they never realized existed you know and who like display great ability instantly because of their birthright like so much of fantasy fiction is based on that we we find it kind of boring to watch people actually learn to do things. <laughs> Better to kind of figure out a way to skip that. So yeah, I wasn't that bothered yeah. either. But would she have been more interesting if if she had more than one flaw other than oh, she uh, she's holding out hope that her dead family is going to come back to her? Yeah, I mean she does come across as like the extremely scrappy, lovable, and and likable. Uh, character i don't know i you know it's been i didn't have a chance to rewatch a new hope before seeing this movie mm-hmm. but i don't remember luke having any glaring flaws other than being kind of naive and kind of annoying and at yeah. least but was he Ray planned, was he planned to be annoying because <laughs> i don't think he was <laughs> i think that was unintentional <laughs> but you know what's interesting about ray is that she can be wide-eyed and um idealistic and naive in the Force Awakens, but that actually makes me very curious uh, to see what she grows into. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's very, it's almost, there's something kind of unfashionable about how straightforwardly likable and good a character she is, you know, in this this kind of age of heroines who are supposed to be, or and heroes as well, who are supposed to have at least a streak of anti-hero in them. It's mm-hmm. interesting to have someone who is so unabashedly heroic and on the side of good. I would kind of like if you, so if you, if you look at the spectrum that is Ray versus mm-hmm. Kylo Ren, they're both sort of conflicted. They're both uh, struggling with their destinies, but they're both very clearly, she's very clearly light and he's very clearly dark. So I like that those two characters balance each other. Mm-hmm. And it makes me want to, to, to see what happens as the, as a, the saga progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly don't care that much about anybody else in, in The Force Awakens. Um, <laughs> when when Kylo kills Han, I was like, oh, somebody put Harrison Ford out of his misery. And he got like a noble enough death. And that's fine. Um, all in service of the father-son ongoing uh, cycle uh, of, of Star Wars themes. Um, but the the scene that made me most interested to see what happens next um, was the mind rape scene between Kylo Ren and Rey. Yeah, which started out in a in a way. I'm sure there will be many articles written, not by me, uh, about trigger warnings in that one scene <laughs> and rape culture in in Star Wars and <laughs> Kylo Ren as a men's right activist, but. I thought that scene was, like, one of the most interesting things they did. And also, I mean, he successfully mind-rapes uh, Poe Dameron oh, yeah. earlier in the movie. Real easy. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that's uh, to have that kind of pairing and have her be the one who's able to fight him off. I mean, certainly it does invite a lot of hot takes on the internet. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, like when I was thinking about taking my niece, who I think is five now, to see this and whether she would be old enough, the only part of it that jumped out at me as like kinder trauma bad, like the kind of thing that would disturb you, you know, that might disturb you as a child and just stick with you was that scene, like his ability to hurt someone, you know, with his mind. There's something about that. That's like darker than I think the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, But so, so you're a big Kylo Ren fan. I like, I like it. I like him. Yeah. I'm into it. I would watch like as mopey as he seems in a, you know, like, I certainly think the the destroying the console tantrums mm-hmm. make him a little too childish. Uh, but I would watch Kylo Ren update his live journal for hours. <laughs> he's I really like that he he does he's very signaled to be like a goth teenager. Mm-hmm. Like he's got instead of a black trench coat, he's got the black robes. Um, he he definitely is like moody. He's mad at his dad. Um, he's got this. He's got kind this- of- Hero in his, in his eye. Yes. He's not, <laughs> I know he's, I, I liked the combination of him being genuinely intimidating at times when he's like mind raping Poe Dameron or sucking people across the room with his powers, but also this kind of sad, you know, trembly lipped character, mm-hmm. this, this guy who feels betrayed and is in pain all the time. Like he is not, he's never signaled to be just a straight, if he is the Darth Vader equivalent, his kind of angstiness is signaled much earlier mm-hmm. than we ever got with Darth Vader. Vader can we talk Darth about Vader. how much all of this is signaled way too much? Like literally the first like scene that you see, I think, or even the first few scenes that you see Kylo Ren and somebody makes like a snide remark about his family or about like, Oh, you're going to be tempted to like, you know, go to the light side because your dad's on solo. <laughs> it's like too obvious. Well, it's definitely, it's not a movie that uh, relies on subtlety. But okay, well, let's talk about that. I think the major, I I enjoyed the film a lot, Mm -hmm. but like the major complaint that you can make about it, that I think anyone would make about it, is that it is almost a remake of A New Hope at times. Mm -hmm. It is so, it sticks so closely to elements from that first franchise in particular, that it it seems almost like a remix or something like that. Was this movie too beholden to, to the older ones? I had a big problem with that um, because going in, I was really hopeful that it would feel new. I was, I was hopeful that it would take us in directions that we couldn't see coming um, and that it would be a masterful you know, new film to launch a new era in Star Wars canon um after the prequels i think there was a lot of room to to improve on um and i think this is the safest version that they could have possibly made because of what they need what they're trying to achieve next by by bringing in multiple generations back to the star wars fold they have to hook people who want to see more of the same they have to give kids a new droid that basically is like their generations r2d2 and so i don't know it feels very calculated but maybe and i've been softening i've been softening my (laughs) stance on how much jj abrams could have deviated from this formula Mm. maybe this is what had to happen maybe this is why he was hired because he did the exact same thing with star trek exact same thing and that infuriated me then as a star trek fan Uh, so maybe this is just where we're going as franchises can never ever die they will always be zombified and resurrected to be familiar enough to make money and new enough to keep uh, justifying their existence yeah you know i think that for me i was exasperated by the fact that this movie did end up with them basically blowing up another Death Star and acknowledging yeah. that they were blowing up oh, another yeah. Death Star. That's yeah, kind of, how weird is that? It's, it's so like, weird. I know. It's you know, we, we you mentioned that that uh, Ray is basically a fan, 
And there are multiple times in this movie where it is almost a meta movie. When, mm -hmm. you know, when Han Solo says, how do you blow it up? There's always a way to blow it up. Like, that's not a wink. That's almost like, uh, that's a meta moment where he, he's like, I realize that we're in the same plot again. P.S. Side note, there is literally a character named, like, Commodore Meta. <laughs> played by, I think it's the one that's played by J.J. Abrams' former personal assistant that he named Poe Dameron after. Wow. So J.J. Abrams had a lot of fun, so I don't feel bad criticizing him at no. all. because He got to bring in all his friends, get to make a Star Wars movie. They did a lot of good, and I think, uh, I think he can take it. Yeah. Oh, no, certainly. I mean, I, he's, you know, rolling around in a giant pile of money right now. <laughs> so I, I certainly don't think he should be immune from criticism. But I, I think that I really liked all of the new characters, even Poe Dameron, who is basically just like a beautiful head of hair and a wink. You know, <laughs> like there, we got so little of him other than just how great he is. Um, I enjoyed them. I really liked Kylo Ren, goth prince of the, the first mm -hmm. order. I really enjoyed uh, John Boyega as Finn, who is basically a character who, uh, you know, was set up in the marketing as, as we talked about before, he set up in the marketing to be the hero and then turns out to just be the guy who's like totally smitten by Ray instantly smitten with her and then just tries to kind of help her out and follows her around for the rest of the movie. Well, they're basically <laughs> all teenagers, right? They are. Yeah. Like, they're all teenagers and, and exploring their, their budding selves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Finn has the, the, the widest open future ahead of him. Like that's the, that's the destiny that is the, I think least predictable. Because well, he's not an obvious stand in for one okay. of the old characters. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If, if... And there's that, that seeding obviously of something deeper with Ray in the future. Mm -hmm. um, he's okay with a lightsaber. <laughs> I guess mm -hmm. I like that bit about him working in sanitation because it works with the humor like John Boyega brought the humor yeah he's he's an extremely likable charismatic guy all of these actors are yeah you know I think uh, given that none of them has I mean all of these characters are very deliberately brawn and drawn in broad strokes like that they're all they all have to be very charismatic to make these we, roles work. Can we talk about Leia? Okay, let's talk about Leia. Carrie Fisher. Yes. The most hands-down charismatic Star Wars uh, cast member that has ever existed. Mm-hmm. And she's so... Not good in this? No, I, I don't think she's not good. But, you know, like... I, I, I kind of I, will, I love Carrie Fisher. I, I love her, too. Like I just want her to be freed from all these restraints that make Leia kind of boring. I know she's she's stepped into this role of responsibility. You know, we, like I I feel like the scenes with her and Han, as much as like I, there wasn't enough allotted to them. I don't know if there could possibly be enough time allotted to them to make that feel like it, it should have the impact. You know that it would have the impact that we want it to. Of these two yeah. characters who've been separated for so long, this like beloved romance. Uh, I mean, I think that one of the things about Han Solo's death that made it feel kind of underwhelming to me was that no one else seemed all that bothered by it. Like, you know, this is a great hero. He dies, he goes back, and I feel like then he's largely unmentioned after that. Yeah. Like, goes no, to show how you know, little respect we have for our elders. Yeah. I did like Harrison Ford in this movie, though. I feel Harrison like... Harrison Ford is so good. He's like, he's it was... Done. I know. It was the first sign of, like... For someone who feels like he's been sleepwalking through movies for a while now, he was like, he, he seemed to be having fun. He mm. was smiling. He looked engaged. He does so much more with just a look, a single look or a glance or like a smile than anybody else in the entire movie. Yeah. So good. And then he dies. And then he and dies. Gone. Never seen again. Maybe he'll come back as a force ghost. I Is that possible? I, I kind know. of like... I saw a headline recently. It was like, "Is are Yoda and Obi Wan in the Force Awakens?" And I'm like, technically, couldn't they just always say that everybody's always in everything? <laughs> You're like, do people ever really leave? Characters never leave. They don't die. They, they never die. They can never die. Okay, it's so who, easy. who are Ray's parents? Okay, do you believe? Do you like the theory that like she's she's somehow Skywalker blood. 
I mean, it's the obvious one, but I kind of want her to be Kylo Ren's sister. I mean, I th- I realize that's unlikely given how this unfolded, but I would yeah. like I would enjoy that. Then it would be like the goth guy mad at his like cheerleader sister. <laughs> and how great would that be? Or like, not even cheerleader. That, that seems unfair. Like debate champ sister. Yeah, that's right. You She's know? like his, her, her, his She'd be like uh, student body star, president. The star mathlete. <laughs> Like, I would like that dynamic a lot. It seems unlikely. Okay, so here's the other thing, though. I don't how that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, but here's the other thing. Does it seem weird to you that in the interest of having these, like, themes recur, every character, like, every character in this gets dumped by their parents somewhere, apparently, or, like, leaves their parents? That's why Allison, you gotta, like, fucking, oh, God, I I just swore. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh my god. Uh, you feel very strongly about absentee parenting in the Star Wars universe. Please. Why is everyone just dumping their children places, though, and not really letting them know who they are? You know, it's a really hard y- galaxy. Mm-hmm. Hard out there for a parent. <laughs> Everyone's always wandering off. I think that the thing that I thought about a lot during this, especially when Han reunited uh, with Leia, was how much... Like, how much of this series is based on people kind of, like, who, re- who reuniting after having wandered far afield, you know? It's is like it because, everyone's constantly yeah. lost. Everyone keeps losing everyone. Is it, is it a reflection of some sort of cultural uh, imperative that everybody feels like they have their own destiny to follow? I guess so. It they just seems very, it seems hero. odd in the context of, like, parents and children. Like, you, you know, like as a parenting tool to be like, I'm going to drop one child off on this desert planet and the other one's going to be raised a princess. <laughs> That'll be good. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about where this is going. So so J.J. Abrams has proven himself to be very successful at working within franchises and kind of maybe reinvigorating them, but not necessarily doing a lot to reimagine them. Right. He... He tends to be someone who's very, like, sticks to a formula, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have Ryan Johnson taking on the, like, maybe the what will be the most highly anticipated movie of this new trilogy. Ryan and Johnson is our only hope. He is our That's only hope. That's how I see it. Do you think that this movie sets him up to have more freedom? I do think that. Because in, in, in that way, J.J. Uh, Abrams totally took one for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, because he will always be credited with rebooting it in this fashion. J.J. Abrams will. Mm-hmm. Um, and he will always be the one blamed or praised for uh, bringing back these recurring themes, these recurring arcs, uh, this very same, same story. And I do think that opens it up for all every writer from uh, of every film to follow to not have to rehash every single beat and maybe hopefully go in new directions. Yeah, I really hope so. Because I think watching this, even someone with a very high tolerance for, or a kind of uh, a real fondness for nostalgia and callbacks and fan service, mm-hmm. I think has to feel a little pandered to by this movie, which really does a lot to lean into nostalgia. Just too much. <laughs> it is too much, right? But, I mean, there, it's a, I guess it's a personal choice how much you allow cynicism to take hold of your heart and you answer to the dark side or you remain optimistic and just love everything and uh, believe that J.J. Abrams is going to make everything okay. I don't All know. Right. It's, just, it's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle between light and dark, good and evil, mm-hmm. nostalgia and the new. <laughs> All right. Well, that is Star Wars The Force Awakens, available in theaters everywhere. everywhere. You might want everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> you might want to buy those tickets in advance still. Uh, but yes, you can check it out pretty much everywhere. <laughs>
brings us to our cue shots section in which we talk about some streaming options or rentable options related to a common theme. And in this case, we are going to be talking about franchises. This has been a particularly interesting year for franchises for me. I mean, every year is a big year for franchises lately. Uh, you know, if you look at the top 10 box office hits of the last few, most of them are sequels or reboots or continuations in some other way. But this year, I will say, as much as there were some sequels that were totally cynical and forgettable, there were others that kind of made me have a lot of hope for if this is going to be the future of film, that it's not all bad. Did they give you a new hope? (laughs) (laughs) Boom. I I will say, in particular, my favorites were Mad Max Fury Road and Creed which I think both went beyond being kind of continuations of existing franchises and managed to use the older films as like a text to kind of subvert and push off of and update in ways that I I thought were kind of great. But I don't know. I love Mad Max Fury Road. It was my favorite film of the year. And I think just like such a good reinvigoration of like action movies way beyond. I mean, you didn't need to see the first Mad Max films though. They're very good. Like you could have gone to see this one and totally loved it. And uh, I don't yeah. know, you, were you a it, fan? You're, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I love it. You're right. It works as a standalone. And maybe that's one of the things that you and I are looking for that we didn't really get uh, in other franchises um, or other sequels because Mad Max Fury Road feels like the world of Mad Max that we all know so well and love, but it feels like a new thing of its own. It's own. It has its own beating heart, has its new, well, new is, but yes, new characters. Uh, Furiosa is maybe one of the best characters, male or female, to come along in many years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually, you know, the uh, uh, Mad Max, I think might be my favorite movie too. Of the yeah. year. <laughs> um, it's yeah. up there. I, I, I think a very good pick. Um, all right. Well, let's get to our cue shots picks. Um, you want to go first? What's your first Yes. One? Well, one of uh, another great, in my opinion, great franchise that uh, came along, came back this year, ties into my cue shots selection, and that is the Fast and Furious franchise, mm-hmm. which this year gave us Fast and Furious 7, uh, a sequel that, of course, had its own singular uh, could sort of story in that Paul Walker died before it was completed, and uh, it somehow managed to still work. They somehow managed to still make it, in my opinion, pretty great, pretty great blockbuster filmmaking. And totally touching, a weirdly, cheesily perfect tribute to Paul Walker. Yeah. The great thing about the Fast and Furious franchise, in my opinion, is that every sequel has felt new or it has felt familiar. They bring back the same characters that they built up a a real, real actual fan love for. And uh, you get to see these characters just go through new adventures that feel new. They don't feel like they're retreads of what's come before. And I think you can trace that back to my pick, which you can rent now. Which is Fast and Furious 3, Tokyo Drift. Ah, oh, I'm so glad that you're going to talk about this movie. <laughs> I will ride or die for Tokyo Drift. You hear that, Matt Singer? You hear that? <laughs> Tokyo Drift, which also has a connection to our, you know, our current uh, age of blockbusters, in that Tokyo Drift was directed by Justin Lin. He totally changed the game in terms of franchise filmmaking by making a, a sort of a deviation from the norm. It wasn't just a straight sequel. It wasn't a, a really a prequel of the same characters. Uh, but it tied into this world and it expanded the world in ways that allowed every sequel to, that came after to exist. It, he reinvigorated it in a way that wasn't a retread, unlike the Star Wars, Star Trek world that we live in now. And I really wish that more franchises would try that tack. Yeah. Maybe Creed comes close to that. <laughs> well, it, it also, like, it has that weird, it had that weird effect where 
after in the beginning when stars departed to kind of go on to try and make their own movies, every character who's been, every actor who's been in it has kind of found their way back. Yeah. <laughs> like who would have thought that would have happened? Is there a hashtag family? <laughs> well, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. I am <laughs> <laughs> uh, a huge fan of that movie too. And I will also ride or die for it. It is my favorite <laughs> one in that franchise. Um, and, uh, it's not related at all to my next pick, other than that <laughs> they are both uh, continuations that also really did uh, bring something new to a franchise that looked like it might have all petered out otherwise. Uh, my pick is Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which you can stream on Netflix. Uh, this is a 1994 film. It was the seventh film in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Uh, Wes Craven came back to direct it after directing the first one. And it is the movie that imagines Freddy Krueger coming through from fiction to reality to haunt the lives of the characters, of the people who made the movie. So Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy Thompson, stars as herself. Wes Craven stars as himself. Robert Englund, who plays Krueger, plays Krueger, but also stars as himself. (laughs) Uh, And this is looked at, you know, as a Scream predecessor. And it sort of is. But it's not winking in the same way. And, you know, when we were talking about how everyone in the new Star Wars is like a fan of Star Wars as well, I think that this is a movie that uses that in maybe a little more interesting a way in that knowledge of the, the Nightmare on Elm Street series it's, is what ultimately allows them to fight back. You know, that like they understand, having been in these movies a bit, how that how they work. How would you fight Freddy Krueger? Well, if you've seen enough Freddy Krueger movies, then then you would know. It's a little cheesy as a movie. It's still uh, Michael Hughes, who is uh, who plays Langenkamp's son, Dylan, not the world's most natural child actor, (laughs) I will say. But uh, he also allows the, the movie to dig into a bit what it means like uh, in, a, in this kind of almost innocent way about the ethics of horror and how it affects people, you know, like uh, Langenkamp's very worried that her son is kind of scarred in some way by the movies she's made by like having watched them uh, and other people kind of chastise her for making them. And I don't know, these days I think getting yelled at for making a nightmare on Elm street movie seems pretty mild in the days of like, human centipede but you know it was the 90s and a, a different time but it's, it's right. a really yeah it's a really kind of neat film uh and it is streaming on netflix so that's worth checking out well and one of the great things about that is it's one of the few movies that that in which filmmakers sort of explore the impact of making a film or yeah. making a franchise or being a part of something that's that becomes bigger than them also rest in peace Wes Craven I know I know it's funny like he actually I think the head of New Line plays himself in this Mm -hmm. and they go to see him and he's kind of like he actually talks about how none of them wanted to make another Nightmare on Elm Street movie and then they kind of felt like they had to because the fans demanded it just (laughs) which sounds familiar really all right um what's your second pick Okay, I hope everybody's ready for my second pick because <clears throat> this is a strong recommend. It's also a third installment in a beloved franchise that you can stream. Yes, you can stream on Amazon. And that would be the major motion picture that went straight to DVD, Bring It On, All or Nothing, from 2006. Interesting choice. Oh, yeah. Now, there are... I believe five entire Bring It On features. Most of them, uh, besides the, the first, the first classic starring Kirsten Dunst, did go to straight, straight to, to DVD or I guess straight to whatever it is that things go straight to now. Um, but the third one, okay, the second one you can totally forget. Don't even bother trying to watch the second one, which is one in which they they basically go to college, mm-hmm. but they're not really the same. It's not the same. It's terrible. Bring It On All or Nothing is basically a remake of Bring It On 1 in a different setting with different characters with Hayden Panettiere playing the blonde, privileged cheerleader who strikes up a reluctant friendship with 
Beyonce's little sister. <laughs> because Hayden Panettiere's dad moves her to like the to a, like a different neighborhood, and she has to go to like a predominantly black high school now. And she joins their squad. She learns how to crump. <laughs> They impress Rihanna, who is a guest judge, so much that they get to be in her new music video. <laughs> it's pretty great. That sounds amazing. I had no I idea you were it. such a scholar of the Bring It On franchise. Oh. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like it doesn't get discussed enough that so many movies go on to long, long lives of direct-to-video sequels that no one ever... Oh talks my God. about that means do you know how there must be like a very strong uh fandom around the beethoven movies because they're like a billion beethoven movies i like who i mean i don't know for that i can understand maybe if you've got kids they like dog dog movies but like that I'm might be something of the uh what happened what air buddies air buddies turned into air buddies the buddies movies the talking dog movies. oh yes <laughs> space they go to the, the like wild west they have a halloween adventure i will watch i will watch space buddies at any moment given the chance <laughs> or like the cruel intentions franchise which goes on for a while too oh yeah yeah well those are so good yeah well for my next pick uh, i'm going to talk about a movie that was a sequel that only took 46 years, you know, to, to pick up after the original. That movie is Return to Oz, which is available for rent everywhere. 1985 film written and directed by the great editor Walter Murch. The only movie he ever directed. It was a flop. So, and then he never directed again. Not a movie. Uh, it's set six months after the events of The Wizard of Oz. Though, obviously, a lot more time passed in the real world uh, until then. Uh, I think what's funny to look at is just how much ahead of its time Merch's movie is. I mean, from the fact that it was partially motivated by copyright issues, because um, Disney owned the rights to the Oz stories, um, but they were going to go into public domain soon, so they wanted to get on that. Uh, and to the fact that it's it's basically a gritty reboot of Oz, you know, which we love now. Dorothy Gale, played by Fruza Balk, gets sent to electroshock therapy because she's got, you know, she keeps talking about this world that she visited. <laughs> and then she's saved by Ozma. And then she goes off to Oz, an Oz in which everything has gone wrong. And it's just filled with all sorts of like nightmarish imagery. We've got the wheelers, who are these like, Ugh. these people who have like wheels instead of hands and feet. They haunted me. When they I totally haunted child. me. The deadly desert, you know, where you touch the sand and then you turn into sand and just crumble away. And of course, Mombi the witch, who keeps all of those heads to switch out like their accessories and who wants to take pretty heads that she sees to add to her collection. And in one of the most terrifying scenes, all of the heads like wake up and yell, Dorothy Gale. And it's terrifying, uh, you know, but I mean, all of it, it's also great, which is why it is a cult favorite now. And I think it really nicely captures a dark side to all of the kind of lighthearted uh, iconic strangeness of the Wizard of Oz, you know, it's like trying to, it's like trying to find nostalgia and instead everything has gone wrong. And I think that, you know, in, in the light of those movies that we've been talking about recently that kind of are so beholden to the original formulas, yeah. uh, this is the one that is like, what if we just turned it all around and upside down and everything was wrong and dark and broken? Um, so that's Return to Oz, which is available for rent. If it is not, if it's a movie you haven't seen yet, I would highly recommend it. It is a lot of fun, disturbing, and um, kind of fantastic. Well, we were considering skipping Singer and Wilmore's Totally Concise and Completely Succinct New Release Roundup. I texted Matt so I could get that name right, just so you all know. Uh, because we just talked about a movie that is currently in theaters, but then... It's the holidays, and so many major films are coming out in this upcoming week. So we didn't feel like we could skip it entirely. So we're going to do, we're going to touch briefly on four major movies that are coming out in this week, though maybe not all of them feel so major when you actually watch them. Uh, let's start off with Joy, David O. Russell's latest uh, 
movie with Jennifer Lawrence. Were you a fan of this one, Jen? I liked it much more than every single human being that I know. So I don't know what that says. Uh, but this is basically David O. Russell's woman's picture mm-hmm. in that it is a story based on a true story of this of this entrepreneur, Joy Mangano, who invented the Miracle Mop and became a, a home shopping superstar. I had never heard of her before, so her story is really interesting to me. Um, and you get a, a huge, very, in my opinion, very very winning performance by Jennifer Lawrence. So those are the things that I did like about it. Um, I will admit it is a little bit messy. <laughs> a lot messy. It's a lot messy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, it felt like a rough draft of a movie to me. Like I, I, as much as I like Jennifer Lawrence and I think that she has some great moments in this, this mm-hmm. one just felt like very disjointed to me. That's true. Um, totally yeah. true. Totally yeah. valid. Also, you spend too much time with her family, which her, her is terrible like family, the, her the terrible worst parasitic family, family. Of, all, of all time. <laughs> Even worse than the family in the fighter, which was already a really bad family. Definitely. And you know, like this is coming out. This is a, a holiday movie. This movie does not make you want to spend time with anybody's family. <laughs> uh, that's true. Nor does honestly, hateful eight, which is a movie about. <laughs> the dangers of being locked together in a small space with, uh, in cold weather with people. But you know what? Hateful Eight yeah. is probably a more accurate representation of what it's like to go home for the holidays. <laughs> dark, Jen. Very dark. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, I did not expect to like this movie as much as I did. You know, um, Matt and I talked about Inglorious Bastards and revisiting that. And we talked about Quentin Tarantino on a recent podcast And uh, I, you know, have not been a fan of the last two movies. But this one, I will say, despite a real mean streak, like even more than usual, I think, for him uh, in this movie, it's also a really good time. It is just, uh, it manages to make his his kind of fondness for long, long stretches of dialogue that build up to an act of violence. It manages to make that work, or at least I thought so. What did you think? No, I agree. I, I really liked Hateful Eight. And I, I saw the roadshow version with the intermission. Uh, oh, um, and the overture. And the overture. It totally works. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I would recommend seeing it in 70 millimeter. Uh, but also, it's a, it is really fun. It is really violent. It is really dark. It is really talky. But I think, to me, those elements work so well in concert with each other. And it feels like such a tar- Tarantino movie. But it also feels like a Tarantino movie with a really strong political conscience. And I think that alone is worth, you know, like makes it a a valid recommendation for anybody to watch. Um, I saw it very soon after I saw Spike Lee's Chirac. And Mm -hmm. although Spike Lee and Tarantino hate hate each other... (laughs) I think I think Hateful Eight and Chirac are the the double feature of the year. Yeah, I would agree. I'm not a I am not a big fan of Chirac, but I do feel like those movies seem like they're almost in conversation mm-hmm. at points. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to the other snowy western uh, of of this season, The Revenant. This is Inyaritu's latest movie and it is uh, a survival revenge tale starring Leonardo DiCaprio as a man who comes back from a dire injury and goes off to track down evil Tom Hardy. Uh, what did you think of this movie? I loved it. You did? I did. Um, not so much for the story mm-hmm. or the character. This is also based on a true story and it's not uh, the survival story of a of a uh, white white man who gosh how where do you even start uh the story (laughs) of leonardo dicaprio basically uh being left for dead um in the snow um and having to fight his way back uh from near death is a compelling thing to watch the themes don't hit as hard for me as they probably do to men maybe i would Mm -hmm. say but as a as a cinematic experience, I was I was floored, and I loved every second of watching it, including the very controversial bear scene. <laughs> I like 
like that when that ridiculous story about the bear rape broke. Oh, yeah. No one ever mentioned that it was very obviously a mother bear who attacked because <laughs> she has two cubs. Like that whole thing, you know, like the whole thing that he was claiming would have been off the table if they had just mentioned that the reason he gets attacked by a bear is because it's a mother bear and he's like looking at her two, cu- two cubs. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, 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 I mean, that whole bear rape story was just hilarious to me. Uh-huh. Um, but watching the scene, the scene is terrifying. Yeah. And it's all like a long take. Uh, lots of line takes. I so I do not like this movie, but I will say it is beautifully shot. Like uh, you know, um, Chivo is one of the greatest cinematographers working today for a good reason. And all of the natural light and the long takes and the general gorgeousness of it is very impressive. I just thought, for me, it was verging on funny all the time. Like it was so serious <laughs> oh. and so manly and so kind of like gruff that there are points where I just thought it was hilarious, especially when like the characters are like eating raw meat in the snow and staring at each other. Just like, (laughs) (laughs) I Uh, would totally do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will say though, I liked, I was, I was a fan of Birdman. So I am not some, uh, in your tends to be a director. People are very partisan about. Um, Mm. I don't care either way, but it's so interesting because I did not like Birdman. Mm Mm-hmm. But you like, but Birdman. only because of the end of Birdman. Oh, interesting. All right, let's move on to one last movie, and that is Concussion, the Will Smith movie about a real doctor who uncovers uh, a a form of basically brain damage (CTE) that is rampant by his findings in the NFL, caused by these constant repetitive head injuries that come from tackles and other impacts. Um, and he tries to break this story and report the story and these findings and the NFL fights back because they do not want their business and the sport interrupted. Uh, I thought this movie was, despite having the guts to take on the NFL, just like your typically dire, boring, uh, like dutiful, serious issue biopic. And I was pretty disappointed that, uh, something that I think could spark a big discussion was so, I don't know, kind of lamely made. What did you think? Oh, I think the, <laughs> the best thing about concussion is that, is that concussions are bad and that's <laughs> totally true and it's totally scary. And it's an issue that uh, certainly football players and um, you know, American parents who put their kids into peewee football should think about, or at least be aware about. Uh, I love football. I used to play football. I used to play rugby. And I never once thought about getting concussions, nor did I worry about getting concussions. Um, how much smarter would I be if I hadn't played all those things now? I don't like to think about. But yeah, concussion is a missed opportunity. It's yeah. not very good. Um, Will Smith is, to me, almost always utterly watchable, no matter what he is in. But he's doing this very heavy accent, um, which is distracting. But more distracting is this, this sort of the the lionization, the 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 hero worship of this doctor. Um, and this, the, there's a, a subplot about his faith, you know, being mm-hmm. an, an element. It's all just like very Oscar baity yes. and not very satisfying. And I also feel like. You know, this is a movie where the the main issue, I think, is one that really could benefit from being brought to the attention of women, you know, like Mm -hmm. mothers who maybe would would intervene or kind of be more concerned about the sports that their children get put in, Mm -hmm. you know, and And yet this is a movie in which the major main like female main character uh, who's played by Gugu Mbatha-Ra, who's so great last year in, like, these two great roles, mm-hmm. uh, is, like, is the most thankless, like, supporting role Ugh. I can think of this year. It's just so, like, someone who is there to just give encouragement to to this main character she ends up marrying. She's literally, the, that is literally what she does. Yeah. It's literally and, the purpose she serves. It's just so disappointing. So, yeah, I would agree. A real missed opportunity from that one. Well, that brings us to Behind the Eight Ball, where every episode we bring you three new releases, new to streaming, two listener recommendations from you guys, and one uh, pick 
chosen randomly from our Netflix My Lists. And Jen, you are going to go first this time. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. okay. Give new me three new releases. Streaming on Netflix is an original, a Netflix original documentary series called The Making of a Murder, which premiered on Friday. It is 10 episodes long, another true story, uh, a saga about, and this is a real life case, of a man who was released from prison after 18 years when a DNA test proved that he was innocent. But that's not the end of his of his uh, uh, journey, I suppose. It is basically the true crime story that everyone who is obsessed with serial and everyone who is obsessed with the jinx will be obsessed with in the next few weeks. Also new to Netflix is a indie horror movie called Pod, P-O-D. Not about the band, but uh, it's, a, it's a psychological thriller uh, set in snowy New England about two siblings who go to stage an intervention with their veteran brother who is having what seems to be a, a paranoid break. Um, it's a really fun watch by this filmmaker named Mickey Keating, who's something like 25 years old, has written and directed already four micro-budget genre features in just like two years, and he's heading to Sundance next month with his latest movie. So I think he's an interesting person to watch. And then my last recommendation, which is on Amazon and Hulu, is Interstellar. It's new to Amazon and Hulu. I have this controversial opinion that Interstellar is much more satisfying than The Martian. Wow. And basically the same thing. So don't worry about, you know, rewatching The Martian or obsessing over The Martian because it's going to get all the Oscars or whatever. Go watch Interstellar again. All right. Two listener recommendations. The first recommendation is from Amy, who writes, A royal affair languished on my Netflix recommends list for at least a year before I deign to consider it. It is a story about Danish royalty. I had seen the trailer too many times in the theater, and I thought it looked cliched. It definitely is not cliched, she says. I rarely rewatch movies, and I also rarely cry during them. I've seen this movie now twice and cried both times. A further bonus is that this is one of Alicia Vikander's earlier roles before her, the massive year that she had this year. And it also stars Mads Mikkelsen, who just had a great final season in Hannibal. So that is a royal affair. Our second recommendation comes from Alistair in Lewisham in the UK. He writes, I was pleased to discover that Tubi.tv has captive a Russian war movie about two soldiers caught behind enemy lines during the Chechen war. In order to get back to their unit, the soldiers must rely on the help of a young Chechen rebel that they have captured. Throughout their tense ordeal, the rules of power undergo constant reversal and a special kind of male bonding occurs. It is mercifully short for a Russian war film at only 83 minutes, and I have been keen to see it ever since it first popped up in the Karlo Viveri Film Festival in 2008. It is heartily recommended for any cinephile who likes their action movies stripped down and filled with subtext. Alistair, I, I love my actions, my action films with subtext. That's why I love Fast and Furious. <laughs> All right. And one from your My List. Uh, let's see. You gave me pick number six from my queue, which happens to be a series called Broadchurch. Have you seen Broadchurch? I have. Well, only the first season. Yes, so now Netflix has the first and second seasons of Broadchurch, which after watching David Tennant in Doctor Who and Jessica Jones, which I was obsessed with, uh, Broadchurch is my next David Tennant property that I'm going to binge watch. Yeah, I really like the first season. I have not tried the second season yet, but uh, the first season was good. And are you ready for your three new releases? I am ready. All right. First up, new to Amazon Prime and Hulu is Selma, Ava DuVernay's movie about Martin Luther King Jr. and the 1965 uh, Selma to Montgomery voting rights marches. Someone tell Quentin Tarantino, who famously <laughs> said he thought this looked like a TV movie and then admitted he hadn't seen it yet. Now mm. it's easily available for everyone. Also new to Netflix is a movie called Slow Learners, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm very interested to see in my general interest recently in indie romantic comedies, which seems to be the only place the romantic comedy is thriving. Wait, uh, recently? Was, an interest, a recent interest? Well, an always interest, but I feel like <laughs> this year 
I've been more on the, on the, on the lookout and haven't <laughs> seen a mainstream romantic comedy in a really long time. Um, but this one stars Adam Pally from Happy Endings and Sarah Burns from Enlightened, who are two actors I like a lot. And in this, in this movie, they play friends who decide to help each other become quote unquote bad and crazy. And I do like a movie about people who are incapable of acting out even when they want to. And finally, new to Fandor is The Forbidden Room, the latest film from Guy Madden. And, uh, excuse me, uh, is the latest film from Guy Madden and uh, indescribable as all of his movies are. A set of stories within stories about a submarine crew living off of the air pockets and flapjacks. Then there are some apprentice lumberjacks and there is a vampire banana and more. Um, so I have not seen that yet. I was sad to have missed it, and I'm really looking forward to checking it out. And one from your my list. Oh, listener recommendation. Oh, God. Sorry. It's okay. And let's see. Two listener recommendations. <laughs> um, all right. First up, we have one from Dave from Reading, Connecticut. Uh, he writes, I just watched Cashback, a sweet film from 20, uh, 2006, which I enjoyed on my first viewing and liked as much, if not more, this time around. The film centers on a young art student who, after a breakup with his girlfriend, finds that he is unable to sleep. How he copes is a delightfully unexpected story. Cashback is currently streaming on Netflix. I hope you have seen it. I have not, but I think that's one that might be on my queue as well. The second recommend. Rec- the second recommendation is from Tim, who's at Wallaber, W-A-L-A-B-E-R on Twitter. He writes, I wanted to pass along a recommendation for something that's not a movie, but nonetheless, I'm sure you and your audience will enjoy. It's a video game called Her Story, available on uh, iOS, Mac, and PC. The game is actually just as much uh, movie uh, or play as it is video game. The premise is that you play a detective-like role sitting in front of a computer terminal with access to individual clips from various interviews with a woman involved in a missing persons investigation. The clips are only her answers to questions from detectives. The questions themselves are missing. The genius of the game is in that your only way to access the clips is to use a simple keyword search. Whatever you type in, the clip in which that word is spoken appears for viewing. Each clip gives you a bit more information that leads to new search keywords and so on as you unravel the mystery in a non-linear fashion that is truly different from player to player. Please give it a try. I'm sure you will find it interesting and the main acting performance is very good too. A bit different than a normal recommendation, but you can play it on the same devices you use to stream movies. Just approach it from a slightly more interactive movie mindset. Uh, Thanks, Tim. That's a really interesting recommendation, and I've heard a bit about that. Yeah. And, Allison, may we have a pick from your my list? Okay, you gave me number 10. Uh, That is Dior and I. Uh, That's Frederick Cheng's documentary about Raph Simmons' uh, who makes his first haute couture collection as the new artistic director at Christian Dior. And you know how high fashion I am all the time. Nothing but haute couture for me. So I've actually heard some very good things about this. Um, I'm not necessarily a huge devotee of fashion docs, but I am interested in them as a kind of I don't know, in the details of it and the labor behind it, which is apparently what this is filled with. So that mm. is Dior and I. Uh, it's number 10 on my my list on Netflix. Well, I would like to thank Jen Yamato for joining us here on Film Sweating SVU. Jen, it was such a pleasure to have you uh, here, thank even if you. we disagree on The Revenant. <laughs> you know what? We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. <laughs> uh, no bears will come attack us for disagreeing. Uh, Jen, if people want to find your writing or follow you on Twitter or both, where can they do that? Well, thank you for having me. Um, If you'd like to find me on the internet, I'm there all the time at Twitter, (laughs) at Jen Yamato, J-E-N-Y-A-M-A-T-O. You can find my writing at thedailybeast.com. And uh, I want to give a little shout out to Matt Singer, uh, who is going to be a wonderful dad. I hope as as I hope that his his spawn <laughs> inherits his excellent karaoke skills, which <laughs> world renowned. And thank you, Allison. You can always find out more about this show, which is the Radish Show, including an archive of our past episodes, as well as a list of direct links to all the titles we've just discussed at filmspottingsvu.com. 
And the Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And Film Spotting SVU will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and another fabulous guest host. Though will they be as fabulous as Jenny Motto? Who can tell? In the meantime, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Wilmore. Follow Jen at Jen Yamato. Follow Matt at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That is the account where we also share more streaming suggestions from me and from you guys, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>